this morning, both in our gospel reading in Matthew 18 and our epistle in Romans 12, they, they center on some of the interpersonal ethics of the kingdom. But most people, I would say, in our era, whether they're Christians or not, generally accept that most of these ethics are what good people do at their best. Broadly speaking, these people are helpful, right? They, they reconcile, um, they give and they forgive and they em- empathize and they harmonize. They see patience and compassion and humility as essential expressions of wisdom and of maturity. They do the hard work of seeking peace on the other side of conflict, even though that's hard and even if the outcome is not guaranteed. They take responsibility for others and they even go so far as to break cycles of violence through nonviolence. They don't let the worst among us dictate our behavior and drag us down. For Paul, this is what marks the Christian community. All this one-anothering that he talks about and we talk about, it's how we bear this peaceful, winsome witness to Christ's kingdom. For Jesus, his followers pursue reconciliation at the cost and it is costly to, to be as honest as we're called to be, potentially you know, facing the real difficulty of what should be non-judgmental confrontation. Although for those being confronted, it doesn't always feel that way, does it? But of course, Jesus commands it and calls us to it. And all of this, these ethics, all of what I'm saying here, it assumes two basic underpinnings. First, the dignity of the individual, which we take for granted, and this universal connection between humans that we also take for granted. But here's the first thing I want us to reflect on this morning together. Until Christianity emerged and began to have the kind of influence that it did, these ethics that I just described of individuality and of universality, of equity and of connection to one another, they weren't taken for granted. They were not in the world. In fact, they were completely alien. It's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? The Oxford political philosopher, uh, Sir Larry Sidentop, he, um, that is a great name, Sir Larry Sidentop, right? (laughs) He wrote this book entitled Inventing the Individual, which sounds strange in and of itself. What does that mean? His book is a treatment of the emergence of individuality in the West from ancient Greece until the Renaissance in rough, until roughly you know, the 15th or 16th centuries. It's a really, really interesting study, and he begins with a warning, actually, to his modern readers. And it's this call to self-examination. Pay attention as you're reading this. He says that our problem, as we're trying to take this in, is that we think that the individual and the universal are obvious categories. We might say, well, of course there's a thing called a society, and of course it's a collection of individuals, and of course everyone should have the same laws and the same rights, and so on and so forth. But he goes on to say that the world before Christianity is an utterly remote moral world. Nothing like ours. Along with countless other secular historians, he argues that Christianity was the main cultural force that introduced the idea of the individual, and the universal, that we belong to one another. And he even calls it Paul's great discovery. This discovery of the human will that is pre-social. In other words, a mother is more than a mother. 
A son is more than a son, and a slave is more than a slave. The pre-Christian world generally agreed with Aristotle, who, um, you know, that everyone but the ruling classes were subhuman, that basically slaves were human tools. Those are Aristotle's words. And that no one was really anything apart from their family, from their clan, from their history, their city, their nation, their empire, so far as they relate to it. They would say that some people are rational, and some people are not. And I know you've probably thought that at times too, but for them, this was baked in. Others are not rational because where they come from, who they're attached to, how much money they have, etc., etc. But Christianity had a far different story to tell about each person, about lepers, about slaves, about women, and orphans, and Samaritans, and even criminals. And whereas throughout Israel's history, God was continually sending prophets to advance these ideas, even his chosen missionary people, even Israel, constantly fell captive to these prevailing ideas of their contemporaries. And of course, we know this after them, the church, having the teachings of both Jesus and of Paul, the church has often fallen into the same trap. What do we do? We internalize the ethics of Jesus that suit us, but we deny the ones that don't. And you could say that we probably have a strong allergy to the ones that challenge our self-preservation and our pursuit of power and security on our own terms. We would rather ignore the ethics of taking up a cross, or in Paul's words, of dying daily. Because it's hard, and it is out of step with our culture. We know that more than 13 centuries after Christianity spread through the Roman Empire and basically abolished slavery, you had these forces at work, these runaway economics of greed that constructed the idea of race and with it um, racial inequality and resurrected slavery in the West. And not surprisingly, it would take Christians and their ethics again to overthrow this antichrist movement that had even permeated the so-called church. On Tuesday, my family watched The Kingdom of Heaven, which is a 2005 film from one of my favorite directors, Ridley Scott. It's about the third crusade in Jerusalem, late in the crusades. It's an incredible cast, epic cinematography, mediocre movie. Poignant, but I think a bit mediocre. It exposes, though, how they just tried to be super epic in that era, early 2000s. That's what they were after. It exposes how dangerous is the idea that the kingdom Jesus announced can be reduced to geography and economics. How easy it is for individuals to be swept up in movements, brandishing the cross even, but not carrying it, not taking it up in the way that Jesus taught us. We know that even the cross, and we've seen it time and again, it can become just another emblem hoisted in the name of empire and ego. And I think we can all understand that well enough, right? Okay, that makes sense to us. But, geez, Paul, there's nothing practical, nothing reasonable about giving my enemy something to drink when he's thirsty or feeding him when he's hungry. Nothing practical or, about that. Sure, we can probably get better at loving our Christian brothers and sisters, even the annoying ones, but the people who directly oppose us? Why? Why do we do that? And by the way, Jesus, if my brother sins against me, that's on him to make it right, not me. I'm the victim here. 
I'll wait on him or her. And as I mentioned last Sunday, it's, there's an interesting shift that happens after Matthew 16, after Jesus tells the disciples to take up their own cross and follow him. The shift is that we see the remainder of Matthew's gospel is cross-shaped. We say cruciform. It sets out to demonstrate what a cross-informed life looks like. Jesus not only embodies it himself on his way through rejection and suffering and betrayal and death, but he's actually, you see this thread, he's teaching it on his way to the cross through lessons and through parables and demonstrations of sacrifice and of self-emptying. He tells his disciples, just some, some examples, he tells his disciples that humility, uh, like that of a child, is what makes you great. And look, children were subhuman in that day. And then he tells them that it, desperate, sacrificial measures are sometimes necessary to avoid being so captured by your own sin and temptation. Habits. You might have to do something drastic. He challenges spouses to go further to save their marriages than they've been taught. He tells an earnest young noble or the rich young ruler, we say, that his identity is in his wealth. And he's going to need to let it go to find the kind of fulfillment he's after, to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And he goes away sad, though Jesus is full of compassion for him. And then we find ourselves right where we are in Matthew 18 today. We find ourselves challenged by this call to do the proactive and the persistent work of seeking reconciliation with someone who has sinned against us. But what I want to point out is the thing behind the thing. Jesus isn't simply teaching us something about the importance of reconciliation. And let's be honest, when we work it out, when someone repents, when things go smoothly, it makes life a whole lot easier. But actually what he's doing as he moves from the call to reconciliation then to prayer and unified prayer, he's validating the power of our agency when we're committed to his ways, to his ethics, to dignity, to unity, and universality expressed in both peacemaking but also prayer coming together in the presence of God for the purpose of asking God to come into our lives and our circumstances the point that emerges here first to do with relationships and reconciliation and then to do with prayer is that we're actually surrendering our wills to his which forces us to entrust the outcome to him in relationships, we ascribe and we act upon, even in hard moments, we act upon the dignity, the individual dignity of others, even if our instincts are to judge and reduce them to their failings. We're entrusting that going to them, that dealing with them, Jesus is going to show up. It's true that our, he says that our brother or sister might refuse our pursuits. They might even refuse anyone and everyone who appeals to them. When the stakes get really high, you're hurting the whole community. But through this work, what Jesus is saying is that we're tapping into something greater than just trying to work it out. We've tapped actually into the reconciliation Jesus won on the cross, which is the will of heaven. Have you thought about your conflicts and your difficulties in that way? availing that situation to the will of heaven 
This is why Jesus can say we're binding and loosing something heavenly on earth when we live and speak this way. There is a power and an agency that we have. The kingdom of heaven is coming, and it's connecting to our everyday challenges and conflicts when we come together in agreement and in active pursuit of the good. What we can do and what we're longing for, what we're praying for. When human beings don't allow between them the things that Jesus did not and does not allow between us and his Father, then what happens? We come together so closely that we experience God in deeper ways because God is three in one. God is divine relationship, divine unity. God, the perfect love of God that is God himself. That is what Jesus is inviting us into, an intersection of heaven and earth. And look, let's just think about this in our own confrontations, conflicts, our, our seeking of reconciliation. We, we live in a blamey culture that's very hypersensitive and increasingly so it just it is and I think for us we can get confused at times between what is someone sinning against us and maybe just doing something we don't prefer or like Um, we can really be reactionary and I think it's good for us as the church even amidst this culture to discern what's sin against us and maybe again just what's something that doesn't make us feel the way we want to feel What's difficult? What's uncomfortable? And to be able to do what one of my mentors said is, well, he made this uh, distinction between immaturity and maturity. He said that immaturity is having thin skin and a hard heart, but maturity is having thick skin and a soft heart. And so even before we ever come to the place of reconciliation and confrontation, being in a place uniquely, I think, to a degree, in our very outragey culture is to be able to ask the question, how big a deal is this? And how should I feel before the Lord? And have I prayed about it? And et cetera, and et cetera. And that's a mini-sermon within the sermon. But here's what I'm saying. This binding and this loosing um, is a way of saying we can experience and influence earthly order, um, the earthly order we live in, influence it and affect it through this heavenly connection that we have. That's what this binding and loosing means. We do this by entrusting the situation, entrusting our difficulties to the ways of Christ, even if, especially if the outcome is uncertain. Just ask the question, are you going to go and potentially confront someone? In love, non-judgy, if you know that there's even any possibility that they're going to resist you, what does that cause you to have to do? To trust Jesus with it. To ask in, in speaking and in acting that there will be a binding and a loosing and that because it requires trust and self-emptying that Jesus will be present there. Then in verse 19 of our gospel, Jesus expands that sense of agency and divine connection, teaching his disciples about the necessity and the power of agreement in effective prayer. And no, this is not Jesus giving us a formula for getting all our prayers answered. But what is he doing? He's defining the nature of prayer. Prayer uniquely unifies us in purpose, in focus, and in trust. And so what does it do? It uniquely connects earth to heaven through us. That is the definition of priesthood. 
of connecting the earth, of connecting our circumstances, connecting our needs and our struggles and etc. to the will of heaven. Prayer connects what we want to what God wants, just as Jesus did. Jesus modeled, often through tears and struggle. Prayer like this connects the contingency and the struggle uh, of life on earth, the struggle that we have even between us, with our assurance of the Father's love. It connects us together with the inheritance that's kept for us in heaven. It connects us to one another. So by agreeing together, gathering together, we're individually We are tapping into the universality of our humanity created by God. Think about it this way. Think about our worship. Think about our prayer together, uh, this whole service this way. We're coming together today from all kinds of stories. I don't know what kind of week you had. Some of you probably had a miserable week, and some of you might have had the best week of your life. We are coming together from all kinds of stories and circumstances and challenges and complexities to pray together. We are, you know, we even take this moment in our service for reconciliation. We pass the peace, and yes, it's a meet and greet, and that's great, and you can catch up, and etc. but it's actually a moment in our service to remind us that we're meant to be reconciled to one another as we come to receive from God. Keep short accounts. Do the work. Be together. Pass the peace. So at this intersection, our worship, our prayer, this intersection of heaven and earth, as a priesthood of all believers... We are actually doing this. We are holding our disparate needs, a lot of different kinds of needs. We're holding them up to the Lord as representatives. Again, the definition of priesthood. We're representing in our own lives the universal needs of the world. Have you ever thought about it that way? There's somebody going through the same thing you're going through, and they don't know where to turn. But you do. And that's the priesthood. The universal needs of the world, the, one, you know, the ones that we experience in our living rooms and in our offices, but also the ones like the rest of the world that are downstream from political power and corruption, economic systems that aren't working, cultural movements that are empty. We're bringing them before the Lord. Our lives of gathering and prayer are also lives of groaning in desire for a better world that begins with us. Individuals, who are part of a universal need and belonging, who have this calling to restore as much shalom as we possibly can in our own lives, as much order as we possibly can in the way we pray and with God's help in the way we live, with lots of help. These Christian ethics of individuality and universality, they are still in battle. Do you know that? Like, they are. Uniquely in our era, individuality is actually being warped out of shape into individualism. We all know it. We all feel it. And as individualism rises, the universality of our humanity, our connection, our shared identity, and our purpose, it's really being trivialized in many ways through new waves of tribalism and of sort of this prevailing victim-oppressor thing. It's the other, right? And there's a victim-oppressor narrative that actually it doesn't belong to one side of our politics. It belongs to both. I'm reading this really fascinating book uh, called Generations. It's written by an influential San Diego State. Um, she's a social psychologist named Jean Twinge. And here's this staggering. The book analyzes data on 39 million people from lots of different robust studies, some of which go back nearly a century, to try to understand better the generations. 
And at her conclusion is that the differences and the divides that, that, that exist between the six living generations right now, they aren't primarily to do with what a lot of, um, of other scholars have believed that, you know, each generation has experienced things like 9-11 or the Gulf War or World War II or the recession or this or that, you know, and how they uniquely at their age experienced it. She said she doesn't believe that this is ultimately what defines generations. Instead, she pays really close attention to the rapid technological changes in the last century, how those have affected each and every generation, arguing that technology and individualism are growing in lockstep. In other words, what we have created in many ways in the last century has made it much more possible for us to become more isolated, individualistic. For example, the invention of home appliances. I like appliances, we all like appliances, but it's made it possible for people to live alone and not in community when they would otherwise do that. Someone told me once ab about Francis Schaeffer who um, you know, this, has this intentional ministry community in Switzerland and at Labrie, and when they got rid of, they all sort of washed dishes, washed clothes together, and there was a lot of community in that. They got appliances and et cetera, et cetera, and they, had, they came together and recognized they had, how much community they had lost because they were doing all that stuff together again I like dishwashers I like air conditioning but air conditioning has kept us off our front porches and she's pointing out these kinds of things and again she's not making a, you know being polemical about it she's saying we're just observing the television has weakened our connection to the way that people have learned and been connected to you know historical literature that was very foundational for the way we understood ourselves and instead feeding us a steady dose, increasing dose of commercialism and materialism. Instead of just making work easier or more efficient, the computer and cell phone have made work constant. And of course, the internet and social media have swapped social interaction for a kind of performative engagement with one another. You feel it, I feel it. Engage, you know, a performative engagement with our world. We're, we, we almost make products out of ourselves, allowing us even to curate news and information in ways that we can accept or that our tribe approves of. And, and, and all of this, she argues, has allowed each successive generation to grow up and grow older more slowly. And now she's, you know, she doesn't make moral judgments, but just these observations. She calls them adaptations to a particular time and place with advantages and disadvantages. Even growing up more slowly, there are advantages to that. But the effects are real, and they have fundamentally changed the culture and shaped each generation. So all that to say, the tether between us has gotten weaker and weaker, not because of some blameworthy quirks, you know, or characteristics of the preceding or the succeeding generations. Let's stop blaming generations, right? This, is, this, this tether has gotten weaker and weaker because there's a larger force at work moving us farther into ourselves and away from one another. Brothers and sisters, Christians should not be surprised by this. We should not be. For our point, as individualism grows and spreads, it diminishes the idea that we belong together, that we belong to a shared reality, to a community, to a social contract. It suggests we can and should change the nature of truth, even according to our own feelings and our own understanding. Whereas people once wrongly said, 
my family, my clan, my culture, make me better than you. Individualism increasingly says none of those connections really matter. We believe we're free in being able to say something that independent. But really, we're just lonely and lost. And we feel the outcry. Look around. Listen. We're still crying out for belonging and connection. We're trying to dig out from under our materialism. We're trying to reach across the widening divide and to make sense of one another. We're trying to just recover the beauty and the power of one anothering, of having something shared and solid, something connected, because we know what we're made for, whether or not we can articulate it. That should give us an enormous amount of compassion for those who don't know Jesus. We're made for the God who is by nature a one-anothering source of love and connection. This is our message to the world. And whatever you think about the Barbie movie, apart from being hysterical, which I thought it was, I think it has resonated. Some of you wonder, what's the big deal with Barbie? It's resonated so strongly for this very reason. We are made for one another. Our connection to each other as men and women Different but the same is so profound and so mysterious and powerful, but it is so fragile. It's so embattled. And again, we should not be surprised. Our connection is powerfully hated. Hated by the enemy of God, the enemy of the Lord's relentless, self-giving, connecting love for us, the potential for our redemptive, reconciling love for one another. So friends, you know, today as we come to this table, each of us and all of us together, we are reminded that we're not the plastic, performative, self-preserving units of production and consumption that our culture tells us we are in many ways, that these runaway forces of division and unmaking are constantly reinforcing and advancing. That's not who we are. We are flesh and blood. We are heart and hands. We're soul and spirit, and we are longing for wonder and blessing and reconciliation and unity and dignity as individuals, but universally connected and created to show the world what God is like. That's what we're made for. That's the message of the cross. That's what the cross wins. That's what the cross gives us. And it's also then the message of our communion, which we experience story we retell every Sunday, that we belong together in what Christ has won for us, that it's what we're made for. Do you believe that? Lord, help us to believe it. Lord, we know what our world is telling us. We know often what our hearts, deceptive hearts are telling us, but we also know how badly we want you. We want connection and how much we need each other and are made for it. I pray you help us to walk this out. Even this week, there'll be ways in which you're calling us to do that. Help us to be sensitive to those. Lord, help us to keep in step with your spirit. Help us to pause in the frenetic reality that we live in. Help us to set aside the things that are constantly driving us inward on our, to ourselves. And help us to see, help us to hear, help us to know. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.